0: Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with Sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending Bright Daily Capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While SHARP is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5.
1: Forget frequently asked questions.
0: Common sense, common knowledge, or Google.
1: How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jason Brennan. Uh, he's the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan family professor. Uh, he focuses on strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy. He's part of the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. and we going to talk about uh, his work? So, Jason, thanks for coming. Sure, thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and the current work you're, you're work- researching on and working on right now.
3: Uh, I'm an academic. I'm originally from the Boston area, but I don't have a Boston accent. I'm a guitar player. Uh, I work at a lot of different things, usually at the intersection of politics, philosophy, and economics usually normative problems that involve having to understand some social science and then being able to take a stance on what the right thing to do is in light of that social science. That's kind of what interests me. I often work on taboo topics, not because uh, I'm inherently contrarian, but just because uh, I don't find that much point in writing papers that say puppies are cute or just uh, agree with everybody.
2: Well, that's good. What, what kind of taboo topics have you worked on?
3: Let's see. I have... I had an entire book uh, on the question of like taboo markets, pe- markets that people think are inherently immoral and arguing that many of these markets are actually quite good um, and useful. Uh, I had a book called when all else fails and a series of associated papers with it that were about things like, you know, if you see a, a police officer choking someone like Eric Gardner to death, is it morally permissible for you to shoot the police officer to save him? And I argued, yes, it is. It's not what advise it because they'll probably kill you, but I argued it is actually just and permissible for you to do. Probably my most famous book is something called Against Democracy, which is arguing that democracy is not an inherently just system. The only thing that justifies it is that it performs better than the alternatives, but it's inherently flawed. And so we should at least be open to experimenting with some alternatives to democracy.
2: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, democracy. So what um, do you believe it's the best system, like the cream of the crap,
3: but it still could be
2: improved a lot? Or is there another system you think that's, that's quote unquote better?
3: Yeah, I think of democracy a little bit like I think of the band Iron Maiden. Uh, I'm a fan of Iron Maiden, but uh, I think some of their albums from like the early 90s weren't very good. Uh, And similarly, I think of democracy as given how bad people are. I mean, I should say this. If people were morally decent, I don't think we'd have government at all. I I do think the the claim that like if only people were angels, we wouldn't have government is true. In fact, I think that's, if anything, giving us too much credit. If people were just morally decent, I don't think we'd need any kind of government, period. Uh, I think government is a response to human depravity. But given that people are pretty depraved and bad, uh, democracy, generally speaking, functions better than the alternatives that we've tried. So sure, I'm a fan in that sense. But then the question is, well, what's wrong with it as we try it? And what can we do to fix it? Uh, and that's what I, a lot of what I focus my work on. In particular, I focus a lot on the issues of, how we res- how we don't think very clearly about politics, um, what kind of duties we have with regard to getting information, um, why is it democracies incentivize people to act in irrational and bad ways? Why do they make us mean and dumb? And so that's kind of the things that I'm concerned about.
2: Yeah, interesting. Um, When you when you first started talking about it and you said, you know, people essentially are all massively flawed and I'm just, I'm putting words in your mouth, but like a mess, et cetera. Do people get upset when you say that? Do <laughs> They say, well, I... I'm not like that, or you know, or do people agree, or do they laugh, or like what kind of responses do you get when you say that stuff?
3: yeah, generally speaking, uh it depends on who I'm talking to. If I talk to average people, almost everyone agrees, and then they think I'm talking about somebody else, right It's like, yeah, you're right, politics makes people mean and dumb, not me, I'm smart, and I'm nice, but of course, everyone else is terrible, and they're usually very partisan about it, so It's the type of thing where if a person's a Democrat, they think what I'm saying is that Republicans are all stupid and evil. If they're Republicans, I think I'm saying that Democrats are all stupid and evil. And I go very I'm trying to be very careful. I say most people of most ideologies do not think very carefully about politics. They reason in very poor and irrational ways. Um, And that includes most people who agree with my views, too. Right. Do I think I'm better than they are? that that stuff? Yeah, I do. And I understand that most people think they're better than they are. I understand what the mm Dunning-Kruger effect is. But I think mo- politics makes most people stupid. And by the way, I think that is the point of politics. It makes us stupid because stupid mm-hmm. is the point. And, and to illustrate that really quickly, think about a, a diamond engagement ring. I'm um, actually think about sports fan though. That's a better metaphor for this one. Mm-hmm. I'm from the Boston area originally. And as a result, it is useful for me socially to be a fan of Boston area sports. And one way that and you get social benefits from that, people like you more when you're wearing the Red Sox gear or the Celtics gear. They are more likely to be your friend. They're more likely to date you, to do business with you, because you're basically showing that you're one of them, right? That's how sports works. And that's true even if you like sports for other reasons. You get these social benefits. Yeah, it's
2: like like uniting against a common enemy, even though you're not killing the enemy. You're just playing basketball against the enemy, quote, unquote.
3: And one way you can prove your loyalty is to be kind of irrationally a fan. So imagine, like, you and I are watching a game, and uh, let's say, like, I don't know. uh, uh, One of our players is coming to home plate and he's called out and the call is correct. The guy clearly was out. However, I very loudly in front of everyone go, is the umpire blind? Obviously he was safe. And even if people are like, oh, I mean, that's no, that was a good call. They're like, he's a real fan. Like, and so I'm sort of by being more extreme and more obviously loyal to my group by saying stupid things, I actually like improve my status within the group as being a super fan, and I get increased social benefits. We have really good reason to think that the psychology of politics for most people is basically exactly like that. Or another metaphor would be uh, thinking about, um, say, the process of giving someone an engagement ring. When you, you know, when back in two thousand two, I give my at the time girlfriend now spouse an engagement ring, and I spend thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, to to give her this fancy trinket that's effectively useless, and we have like this really romantic day and everything. All of that together is a very strong signal of my sincerity. It's like I love you so much, and to prove that I'm committed, because anyone can just say that they're committed and talk is cheap. To prove it to you and to prove it to me, I've now spent lots of money and lots of time and done something very thoughtful to signal my concern, and this overcomes you know mm-hmm. a kind of trust issue I might have because it's a strong signal of sincerity. So similarly, what ends up happening with a lot of political behavior is we are trying to prove to other people in our group that we are loyal members of that group. And that's done through political expression. And the more extreme and stupid the expression is, the better it works. That's, that's kind of the idea behind that.
2: What do you mean when you say politics makes people stupid or act stupid? Or, what do you mean by that?
3: Uh, When you look at how people reason about politics, they reason in infantile and irrational ways. They're extremely biased. uh, And I don't mean biased in the sense of having an opinion. Like people say, oh, you're biased because you vote a certain way. No, I don't mean biased in the view of having an opinion. What I mean is systematic deviations from rational thought. So, for instance, uh, here's an example of an experiment. There are thousands of things like this. It's systematic. This stuff has been studied for 70 years. But here's one experiment. Uh, Dan Kahan at Yale runs an experiment in which he gets people to do a math problem. And he says, I'm going to give you data. The data is mm-hmm. fake. To be clear, this is a made up math problem. I just want you to tell me what the data would say if it were real, which it isn't. So the math involves like assessing mm-hmm. whether a particular kind of toothpaste is effective. And some people just can't do the math at all. But some people can, Mm -hmm. and then people just, the people who can do the math get the right answer. They go, okay, if this data were correct, it would show the toothpaste is effective or that it's Mm -hmm. not. And so then he takes those people that were able to do that math and he gives them the exact same math problem. But now he says, I'm giving you fake data Mm -hmm. about uh, gun control. To be clear, this is not a real study on gun control. This is something I've completely Mm -hmm. made up. However, I want to ask, if this data were real, would it suggest that gun control is effective or ineffective? And he varies it for some people. He gives them fake data saying it's ineffective. Some he gives them fake data saying it's effective. And then he sees how they respond. Here's what happens. The people who believe in gun control and can do math say the data supports gun control no matter what. The people who say that, who are against gun control say that it's against gun control no matter what. So basically, as soon as a politically divisive issue is introduced, people read what they know, what they've been told is made up data as supporting their politics right? And it turns out this kind of thing is omnipresent. People are constantly behaving this way. They don't reason about politics very well.
2: Yeah, well, I had just um, seen an article that, I, you know, I thought to myself, duh, how can I not know this? But, you know, when there's a congressional hearing or things that are televised, that's not where the real politics happens. It's, it's kind of for show, and the people involved are acting and, let's say, yelling at each other, et cetera. Have you... Do you believe that that's the case, first of all? And, and if so, what's the implication of
3: that? Yeah, I mean, I do think politicians act in kind of crazy ways, um, you know, inappropriate ways. They say things that are stupid, but they do that because of us. It's We have to be clear, it's our fault that they're like that. And, and what I mean by that is politicians want to win. They want to be, like, if you're running for president, you want to become president. And so what politicians do is modify their behavior in order to make it more likely that they win re-election. So if you have people that are, Imagine everyone were like Mr. Mm -hmm. Spock from Star Trek, just perfectly rational and sort of unemotional about these things. And they only believe what the evidence shows and only as strong as the evidence allows them to show it. Now, imagine what politicians would act like in order to win in that kind of system. You'd have to be dispassionate, scientific. You wouldn't be allowed to use platitudes and make empty promises. You'd have to really be careful. But they're not like that. They're angry, divisive, polarized. They go on these loudmouth displays of loyalty. They purposefully, as, as reason talked about before, they purposely will parrot stupid ideas in order to sort of demonstrate their loyalty. So the stuff that we see on TV when we see politicians acting badly, that is a reflection upon us and our culture. The politicians do that because that's what it takes to win. And that's what the wins because that's how we act.
2: How would you change that or incentivize something better?
3: Yeah, it's really hard to because the, the problems are baked in. The reason the reason people are like this is not because they're bad or stupid or incapable of leading their own lives. Um, I'm extremely anti-paternalistic. Like I, I don't favor government paternalism about basically anything. Like I don't think you should be made to wear a seatbelt or wear a helmet or forbidden from drinking like sugary soda or I, I think you should be allowed to shoot heroin if you want to when you're an adult. I'm saying that as a disclaimer because I just want people to know that's how anti-paternalist I am. But the problem that happens in politics is your vote doesn't matter very much and people act like it. So a good metaphor for this is think about a situation like this. Imagine uh, you're taking a college class, like let's say biology 101 at the University of California, Berkeley. I think they have something like a thousand students in that class because like every pre-med major takes it every year. So you walk in and the professor on the first day says, we're going to have a final exam in 14 weeks that'll be worth 100% of your grade." Um, However, because I'm an egalitarian, I'm not going to give you each your own score. Instead, I'm going to average all of your scores together. Everyone will get exactly the same grade. Now, think how good would the grade be? How, How Like, would they get an A? Would they get an F? You'd expect, and in fact, experiments have been done on this that show this, the average grade ends up being an F. People don't end up learning the material, and it's not because they're stupid or corrupt. It's because the incentives are really perverse. If you study hard, like let's say... Let's say without you, there's 999 other students besides you. So the other students are all going to get, let's say, a 30. None of them are going to study. But you decide to spend the entire semester studying really hard. So you score 100 on the exam. Well, now you move the class average up from like a 30 to like maybe like a 30.7. So everyone notices this and they're all reasoning the same way. So they go, "Ah, it doesn't really make any sense to study. I might as well slack off. So what ends up happening is they become what we call rationally ignorant. Meaning, they don't know the information because it, the cost of the information is higher than the benefits of it. Further, when it comes to politics, they become rationally irrational. They exhibit uh, biased, irrational, non-truth tracking patterns of reasoning because the costs of overcoming bias are higher than the benefits and actually because there's benefits of acting in biased ways. Again, think of like the sports fandom metaphor. So this is just built into democracy. When you have power widely spread among many people, they use it irresponsibly. Everyone who's ever worked in management knows this. If you take a task and you make it the responsibility of 100 people, it's no one's responsibility. The responsibility of everyone is responsibility of no one. You have to have clearly demarcated responsibilities or otherwise a really tight culture where there's massive amounts of group enforcement. And you don't get that when you have 210 million voters. What you get is just irresponsible behavior. So what do you do to fix it? That's the real question. And uh, on that point, I mean, you know, something like, what can we do to fix it, right? Like, so here's something I would advocate doing, which I don't think would fix everything, but I think would at least improve things on the margins. And that is, we change voting a little bit. Uh, So I'm not saying exclude dumb people from voting or irrational people from voting or ignorant people. But instead, um, we could use a research method that uh, methods that's been used in research to study how knowledge and other things affect people's voting behavior uh, in order to improve the epistemic outcomes of democracy. So what you do is uh, on Election Day, everyone votes. Everyone can vote. Your kids, your cat, everyone. Just let them all vote. Doesn't matter who. Uh, but when you vote, you do three things. The first thing you do is you tell us what you want. That is, whatever it is you're, we're voting on, whether it's who the county dog catcher will be or a referendum or who president might be, whatever whatever that is, you tell us what your answer is. The second thing you do is you tell us who you are. We get some information about your demographics um, because this kind of thing affects how people vote. So we know things like, generally speaking, your ethnicity, your, uh, your employment status, your education level, your income level, et cetera, where you live in the country. Um, and this will be done privately. We won't, we won't tag it specifically to you, but it'll be used in the next step. The third thing we do is we give everybody a very quick quiz, maybe 40 questions of basic political information. Things like, uh, what's the unemployment rate? Who's your state senator? Uh, what, what party controls Congress? Uh, can, you know th- Questions maybe about recent relevant, politically relevant facts. Uh, we can talk maybe later about how you decide what goes on the exam. Now, when you have these three sets of data, what people want, who they are, and what you know, what you can then do is calculate, and this data could be anonymized and released to the public, so anyone can, anyone who's statistically savvy could do this calculation. You can calculate what would a demographically identical public have voted for if only it had gotten a perfect score on the knowledge quiz. This is actually the method that political scientists and economists have been using for, I don't know, like 30 or so years now to study Things like how does knowledge affect people's voting preferences? How does ethnicity affect their voting preferences? And right.
2: so on. Yeah, but I mean, if, if the people that would know, all, maybe the people that would answer everything correctly are interested in politics and therefore kind of caught up in the system and modifying their behavior to suit, you know, what you need to do to be in politics. So maybe they would be some of the worst answers.
3: Well, what we find is, uh, I mean, it, it is true that people who are more knowledgeable tend to be more biased. Um, But they also, and that's, that's a problem. We don't have a good way of collecting bias per se, but what we do find is that the biggest predictor that you do well on these quizzes is not things like education or income or anything like that. It's that you find politics interesting. Right. So, but the nice thing about this is when you do this kind of method, you can start like looking for what is biasing the results. So you're able to sort of say, this is what, if I could wave a magic wand and make it so, the United States looked exactly the same, the same kinds of people in it, but just suddenly everyone knew the answers to all of these questions, what would they have voted for? And then you use that to decide what the outcome of the election will be or the outcome of the referendum. And I think this would radically change politics because now in order to win, you're not trying to appeal to the median voter of the actual country, you're trying to appeal to the median voter of a hypothetical country with enlightened preferences, and by the way, this method has been used quite a bit uh, with lots of different data sets with lots of different people. And interestingly, you typically get similar results when you do it, despite uh, like in terms of like what people's policy preferences would be. And the preferences don't really track either party. So it's not a partisan thing. It doesn't come out like the Democrats would always win or the Republicans would always win. Um, what comes out is like people would reject their policies uh, on both sides pretty much equally. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of interesting. You know, and know nice thing about this, too, is now you're ruling out things like this result is not driven by racial bias or income bias or, you know, the bias of where people live. It's being driven by information. We we have a pretty good estimate of what the public would have wanted if only it knew something. By the way, you can also use this. Well, is it, to is calculate... it,
2: is it more ahead. important to know who's in Congress or is it more important to know, let's say, the top five issues that uh, I don't know, uh, you know, or seem to be the most important to the local population or to the, the national population. Maybe it yeah, would be a pre-voting on, you know, what does everyone consider the top issues and then questions surrounding those. That seems to be more like real, quote unquote, knowledge versus just yeah. knowing like, oh, the president's this person, the, you know, the Republicans are in control of the Democrats or whatever.
3: I mean, I really think you need to know all that stuff. And by the way, and people don't really know any of it for what it's worth. But, I mean, first of all, you can't be a good voter if you, if you don't know who your congressperson is. How can you tell whether – if you don't know who your congressperson is, which the typical American doesn't, you don't know which party controls Congress, you don't know what they've done, and you don't know what they could have done, it doesn't matter what else you know. You're not in a position to know whether they've done a good job and whom you should vote for. And, in fact, most people don't know that. The typical American pretty much knows who the president is and not much else. They don't know. They're not good at retrospective voting. They don't know who who their incumbents are. They don't know what those people have done in power. They don't know what was available to them. They don't know what the effects were of the things they voted for. So it's hard to say you could possibly be a good voter if you don't at least know that stuff. But I agree. I think you would need to know more than just I think you need to know quite a bit, actually, to be good at politics. My best recommendation, by the way, would be in order to decide what goes on the quiz to determine who what counts as a fully informed voter, you randomly select about 500 Americans and you pay them to take a week to write the quiz together. And they might include all sorts of things like what's the average price of milk around the country? Um, How much does daycare cost? What's the best Taylor Swift album? They can put whatever they want on there. One question is like, what goes on the quiz? And my, my way of doing this, I think would be effective is this. You randomly select say 500 Americans, kind of like how you select people for jury duty. And you pay them some money and you say, what we want you to do is come up with the knowledge quiz for the, uh, for the national election. And, we'll, and you have them get together and you tell them, we want you to come up with 40 questions that you think people should know the answer to if they're a good voter. And just let them by consensus decide what those questions will be. They might decide to include, I mean, w- this has been done before. So we kind of know what sorts of things they'd ask, but they would be, they probably say things like, you know, you should know who your Congress person is. You should know something about the national debt. You should know that kind of stuff that people, even though people don't know the answers to those questions, when you ask them what, sh- should, what voters should know, they think they should know that stuff, but they might also include things like the price of milk or, uh, you know, the price of daycare or other kinds of concerns So fine, you let the you basically let a democracy decide what counts as an informed democracy. And then you use that for this enlightened preference voting system to try to estimate what the public would want if only it were fully informed. And to be really clear, this method is not being used to exclude anyone from voting. It's not like you need to get 35 out of 40 questions right for your vote to count. It's not how it works. Rather, everyone participates equally. And then afterwards, we get we can estimate what would the public have wanted if only it had gotten a perfect score on the quiz.
2: Well, does that mean that the more questions you get right, the more your vote counts? Is it a sliding or a percentage scale?
3: It, well, not exactly, uh, because there's other factors that go in there too. Because you're also you're also using like the demographic stuff to try to make it even, right? You're like, what would a demographically identical public want? So after the fact, you might say something like, well all things equal, like you had more influence than that person because you got, you know, you voted higher, but it's, it's really kind of artificial to do that. It's more like we all imp- have equal input and then there's an output that's generated.
0: Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? my Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent pending bright daily capsules powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain supplementing with bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code genius five because does
2: it have to be a perfect score or can it be just a uh, a high score like you know 90% or 80% why why perfect
0: no uh
3: well you're estimating what would what would the public have wanted if it had gotten a perfect score what would the public have wanted? But, with
2: but why? Why is that the metric? Why not take the average score? Because the and people that are below the average maybe deprecate their answer, and above the average don't give any additional points, but go for an average. Yeah. Instead of... Well, to be clear, perfect.
3: we're not we're not doing something where uh, we're weighing your vote, your individual vote, based upon how much you know. That's not what's happening. It's rather all your stuff gets put into a statistical machine, and then what gets churned out of it at the end is an estimate of what the entire group would have done if the entire group had gotten a perfect score. And the reason we pick a perfect score is because we're trying to ask, we've asked the people, what do you think it is to be a good voter? They've given us an answer. And then we go, okay, here's our best estimate of what America would have done if it were what you considered a good voter, right? So you said, you said people should know the answers to these 40 questions. Well, if contrary to fact, the the entire population of the United States knew the answers to these questions, this is what they would have voted for. So that's why we're doing it.
2: How would my, my vote in that, in that, situation count. I know nothing.
3: Your your vote would count the same as mine. It would it would by itself have no real effect. My vote would have no real effect. But it's very important that you have people come in and get the questions wrong because now we can start because that's how we know what affects what. We're trying to estimate what would the public have wanted if it had gotten a perfect score and we can't do that unless we like basically get a bunch of different people with different demographics answering the questions at different degrees of success. So in order to sort of generate the data we need to do this, what we need is a bunch of people to get lots of different scores. And in fact, very few people get perfect scores on these things. Uh, And you you can actually give you a pretty good estimate of how people would do. Um, There's something called the American National Election Studies, which is done like every two years. And they survey lots of people and they basically give them something like a multiple choice test about uh, basic political information. What goes on the test varies year to year. Um, But in many years, what you find is something like this. Um, The top 25% of voters get something like about a 90% to 85% on it. They're kind of like B plus to A minus type students. The next group kind of in the middle does the equivalent of chance. So we don't know if they know the answer to a third of the questions or they just like guessed. And then the bottom 25% of voters do worse than chance. They actually get the question systematically mistaken, you know? So like in a the year, like 1996, they asked, they did this and they asked people who's more conservative, Bob Dole or Bill Clinton. And the majority of the worst scoring people thought that Bob Dole was less conservative than Bill Clinton. And they did that for like a bunch of other questions too. Right. So yeah, we, it's not weighing your vote. And then the more questions you get, right. The more votes you have, it's rather everyone participates equally. And then the result of that is we're able to estimate what the public would have wanted if it had been fully informed
2: Has it's been used in any large um you know like real world studies and and what's the the outcome of it if so
3: yeah so the reason one reason i'd like to experiment with this is because this is a, a method that's been used in a lot of different books and papers and this is like this is how we know in political science what affects what you know so if you can a nice book to read on this would be say uh brian kaplan's book the myth of the rational voter uh which is looking at systematic deviations in belief about economics between economists and lay people. And he uses this method to show that it's not explained by the differences between what economists and lay people think about the economy is not explained by things like economists being whiter or more Asian or mailer or richer than, uh, than the public as a whole. It's explained by their economics knowledge. Um, another really good book is called Collective Preferences in Democratic Politics by Skald Althouse. And so he goes through and uses this method with uh, the American National Election Studies and a few other um, different stats and tries to estimate, like, what would the public have wanted if it had been fully informed? And so he's using stats from, like, the year 2000 uh, for, like, that book because like, the book came out in 2003. And what he finds is kind of interesting down the, like, you know, nuanced things. Like, the public would be less in favor of government intervention to the economy overhaul overall. Well, they're not libertarian, per se. Um, they're in favor of pretty nuanced forms of environmental regulation. Uh, they're, in, they're less pugilistic when it comes to war and more in favor of diplomatic intervention. They're in favor of increasing taxes to offset the deficit. Um, they're not as in favor of things like paternalism. So they're kind of, what you get on an, an enlightened public is someone who doesn't really fit either the Republican or the Democratic Party. Right. And by the way, this method is not by its very nature designed to create consensus. One possibility is when you try to calculate what the public would have wanted, wanted if it gotten a f- perfect score, it, they don't necessarily have to converge. It could be divergent. It could be bimodal. You could get all sorts of results. But in fact, almost everyone like Bartels and others who have done this method get similar results. Enlightened publics tend to like certain things. Right. So for instance, uh, enlightened publics are pro-immigration, unenlightened publics are anti-immigration, or had you done this method with uh, uh-uh. I mean, Brexit. it
2: decides that, that that you're enlightened if you get the questions right or you're enlightened as to whatever metric you come up with.
3: Well, I mean, it's once you've used this method really hard- Enlightened would mean better, I would think, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm know. definitely here to say better. Like, I, I am, I'm here to throw stones. I'm not here to be nice to people. If you have a system where you're like, look, We've just given you extremely strong evidence that the reason that you think this is because you know stuff. And it, it, we also ruled out that the reason you think it is because of anything having to do with your demographics. So what else is there? It's like, we've literally checked for other sources of bias. And the only thing that explains your preference is that you know what the, how the world works. I mean, yeah, that's- But the,
2: the, but the, the problem is though, it seems like it's just my opinion, but things have gotten so bad and everyone's saying, oh, that's misinformation, That's dis- disinformation, you know, I, I don't know, it's just gotten to the point where, so if I listen to the politicians, then I'm I'm enlightened or I'm educated, or if I think a certain way, I'm enlightened or educated, it just seems like it's, I don't know, things are fragmented to the point And it just seems like politics is so corrupt that you can't believe anything you hear or see. So how could anything be better than something else or right? It's, it actually, yeah. I don't like to think like that, but it feels like it's gotten to that point.
3: Well, by hypothesis, that point is false, because if if nothing can be true, then what you just said isn't true. Right.
2: Like, no, I know false... but you
3: have to you have to pick something, some
2: heuristic yeah. or I
3: so keep in mind, I'm not saying things like if you listen to the politicians, like the politicians are stupid for the reasons we talked about before. Politicians mimic what the people say, because that's what it takes to get power. Um, and the people are misinformed because they're incentivized to be misinformed uh, because their votes don't matter. So, no, it's not listening to politicians. It's not just listening to newspapers. This is things like it turns out that people are like, let me give you an example of Brexit. Uh, Like Brexit's a really nice illustration of this. So when Brexit Brexit vote is taking place, here's what we find. Uh, You ask people questions about facts that might be relevant to that and they get them wrong. So the questions might be things like what percentage of the European, what percentage of the United Kingdom is made up of immigrants from the European Union? How much money comes into the uh, United Kingdom from the European Union? How much money is going into it or outward? Uh, how much are we paying for various kinds of welfare programs? How much foreign investments coming from China? Basically, everyone gets those questions wrong. However, the remain voters are closer to the truth than the leave voters, but there's also demographic bias, too, because they're not the same kinds of people remain voters tend to be younger, uh, leave voters tend to be older, et cetera, et cetera. So you can use this method and people have to then say, okay, what if we neutralize the effects of demographics and just look at the isolated effect of knowing the truth of these easily verifiable numbers, these are not just opinion things, these are real things, uh, like how much money is spent on something. Right. So we look at that and then we find, oh, okay. so if the public had known the answers to these questions, they would have voted to remain, but they didn't know the answer. Well,
2: I'm seeing a difference between voting for a person to lead versus voting on issues. So what if there's some kind of hybrid where, you know, the system has changed whereby someone gets into a position of power, you know, whatever it is, senator or president, whatever, in order for them for their vote or their decision to count, they have to you know give uh, i don't know seven different supporting facts from at least four different sources that is put before the public and the public really kind of votes to say we think you should do it this way what if there's a system like that perhaps that might be easier to again on a per issue basis to have yeah. information about it versus voting for a person like how do you how do you reconcile yeah. voting for a person with with dry facts that don't seem to be a part of what that person is
3: I think the thing I can understand where you're coming from with the idea you have, but I think, I don't think that would make a dollar's worth of difference uh, because I think it misunderstands fundamentally why people are voting, like why most people are doing what they do. The issue that we have is most people when they're voting are engaged in a kind of signaling behavior. They're not a good way of putting it is like, for most people, politics is not about policy. Uh, they don't really care what the politicians are doing and they're not paying much attention to this. So a good way of thinking about it is like, uh, imagine you've got like, go back to the sports fan metaphor. Uh, you got Jimmy down at the Lansdowne pub near Fenway. Jimmy says that, you know, uh, Tom Brady's the greatest football player of all time. He says that for year after year after year. Now imagine contrary to fact that Tom Brady had left of his own free will. And he went to like the jets because they paid him more money. What would you expect Jimmy to do? Jimmy would say, oh, I always thought Tom Brady was overrated. The guy's a piece of crap. You know, he was just a system quarterback and you're like, You might know that Jimmy had for the past 10 years said the opposite, but now he's saying this and you asked me, why did you change your mind? And Jimmy's like, I didn't change my mind. I've always thought this way. That kind of behavior that I just described is true of about 85% of voters. Overwhelmingly, voters are not issue-based. They're basically just parroting whatever. They they basically pick a party on the basis of, of demographics. It's like, I vote for I root for the Red Sox because that's what people like me do. And I get social benefits. I vote, say, Democrat because the other people around me are voting Democrat and they're like, you know, college professors or whatever. And I want to show that I'm one of them. And what you effectively have are different demographic groups are for kind of historically arbitrary reasons attached to different parties. But once they are, you get these weird social benefits for rooting for that. And so then what you see is the majority of the people who vote for that party and they vote for it every single time, they either stay home or they always vote for the same party. Very few people swing. Uh, what they'll do is either they either don't know what the party stands for at all, or if they do, they're just parroting whatever the party says today. So examples of this would be when you ask Republicans in early 2016 their stance on free trade, the majority of Republicans say that they're pro free trade. When Donald Trump becomes the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party, the majority of them then say that they're anti-free trade. You ask them, why did you change your mind? And they say, I didn't change my mind. I've always thought this. And in fact, that's not surprising because the earliest studies of voter behavior done by people like Philip Converse back in the 50s were found this exact same thing. People just vacillate. They they copy whatever their party says and they they just and they don't even know that they're doing it. Right. So. Making politicians, the problem with politicians is not that they're kind of just unable to cite sources. They have congressional staffers. It's easy as pie for them to get sources. I've given talks to congressional staffers. It's easy as pie for them to get information. They're often lying. They often know what they're advocating doesn't work. I've I've literally like, I, I won't say whom, but I've done things like I've placed my students in working with economic advisors who publish papers arguing that x doesn't work and then they get hired by a president to be their economic advisor and in public they say x does work and then my my students who are working with them are like oh yeah this person knows that it's fake so the issue isn't that they can't find sources and so on it's they're catering to a public that is mostly not concerned with politics and engaging in symbolic behavior So what we need to do is change the voting system to make it so the way that you win is by appealing to better voters. We can't make better voters. So we need to create a hypothetical better voter electorate that we then are catering to.
2: Have you um, learned anything about sortition? You know, I guess uh, some random element of of electing people?
3: Yeah. And I do think, uh, yeah. So sortition involves. How how does that play into uh, your thoughts? Well, for one, uh, when I talk about this enlightened preference voting system, um, I keep saying rather the best way to design the quiz for that is to use sortition to decide to pick the people who write the quiz, right? Because then you avoid demographic bias and so on. You're just randomly picking people. Um, some people like uh, Alex Guerrero uh, at uh, Rutgers University, um, not Tom Brady's trainer, different Alex Guerrero, Claudio Lopez Guerra at um, University of Richmond and a few other people have argued that if we use sortition, um, we just randomly select people, and then they and only they can vote. That this would lead to better outcomes because you make people's votes count for more. Um, I'm not sure. My worry about that is this: I think when you look at when you look at what makes people vote well, um, they really only vote intelligently if their votes count for a lot. Like you have maybe a hundred voters when you have when people have like a really low chance of having any uh, any chance of making a difference what they do is they vote kind of symbolically, but stupidly. Um, And and they'll vote for what they think is good, but they won't think very carefully about it. And when their votes count for a lot, they vote selfishly, um, but they spend more time thinking about it. So I think in order to get it so that, in order to use sortition to get it so that people were really paying a lot of careful attention to their votes, you'd have to make it so you only had like, I don't know, 40 or 50 people voting. But then I think they'd vote in very selfish and self-serving ways rather than for like the national or state interest. Um, so I'm not as enthusiastic about sortition as a solution to these problems as they are, because I just think the numbers don't. You, you basically, yeah, like I said, you either get uh, too many of people through sortition and they vote stupidly or you get too few and they vote smartly but selfishly.
2: So what uh, on the largest scale possible, where where has a system like this been used or is it still in the, uh, you know, in the lab experimental type phase thing? Where is this being used in, in the certain areas?
3: Yeah, no one, no one's using this. Uh, sortition was used in the past. Uh, by. No, no, I don't mean uh, yeah. sortition, but, uh, I mean. But like the thing I'm way. talking about, you know, I know you know that, but uh, maybe maybe people, uh, listeners don't. But no, the enlightened preference method hasn't been used for deciding policy anywhere, right? So you can think of it as other, other political scientists and I were thinking about, given that we know that there are systematic flaws in democracy, could there be institutional changes that could overcome it? But they haven't actually been tried uh we've just you know it's just been like lab experiments or statistical things and so the question is could you implement this and even when i advocate this kind of stuff i'm not saying let's make the entire united states do this tomorrow what i write in my book is something like this and there's a few other things we might try might work better we should experiment with them on a small scale like you know take towns in new hampshire which is a relatively uncorrupt state uh relatively high functioning state and or take the country of denmark and have them experiment with it, and if it seems to work, then scale it up. And if it doesn't work, see if you can make some tweaks. And if it, and then if that doesn't work, try something else. Right. So this isn't meant to be like a revolutionary program where we do this all tomorrow. Um, because the reality is, with any institutional changes, uh, there will be unforeseen consequences and complications. You know, like when when the so-called founding fathers of the U.S. were advocating what they were advocating. You know, a lot of what they were talking about was a big experiment. They didn't know how it was going to work. Things didn't work the way they intended. For instance, the Electoral College. It was a really cool idea. What they thought would happen was no, there would be no, pre, no one would ever be elected president directly. Um, no one would ever win a, uh, a majority of voters. And so, what ended up happening would be the states would would put like maybe four or five people to Congress, and then Congress, the, the House of Representatives, in particular, would pick a president. Didn't work that way, right? It's a cool idea. It just didn't work. What didn't work the way they intended. So similarly, so where, I think, where
2: where could your idea be tested? Where it would be, I don't know. It would give like significant results that could then be used. Like, you know, what's your ideal where this could be used?
3: Yeah. Start by um, taking towns in New Hampshire and have them use this for maybe referenda and things like that. And then if that works pretty well, try doing it for electing the governor uh, at the state level. And if that works well, then maybe electing like you know the senators and the House of Representative members. Uh, and then if that works, now try spreading it out to other states. And I, I, by the way, I would perfectly say like, it will be worse in Louisiana than it will be in New Hampshire, right? Because institutions work differently in different places based upon things like the level of corruption of their government, uh, the quality of their citizens, the, uh, the general levels of trust between citizens. So that's why I think you start with New Hampshire and Denmark and then high functioning places. And then if it works there, you try it elsewhere.
2: Okay. Well, very good. Well, Jason, where can people find out more about your work and your ideas? Where can they go?
3: Uh, I don't do a lot of social media anymore. I'm not on Twitter. Uh, so I think uh, I was blogging for a while, but uh, I'm not really anymore. So I guess they can't, you know, sometimes they appear on things like this. Sometimes my books are out in bookstores and so on, but um, I don't have like a, a big permanent social media presence or anything like that.
2: Oh, no problem. But people can keep an eye out for your work. So very good. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I, I'm lucky I got you when uh, a lot of people wouldn't because you're not, uh, not too active out there but thank you for coming on this podcast really appreciate it
3: thanks so much have a good one
0: do you struggle with concentration have you ever thought of your brain health long term bomar nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent pending bright daily capsules powered by neurobloom if you struggle with focusing think of sharp as brain food that supports concentration Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain supplementing with bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code genius five
1: you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs